We're going to do Nehemiah Helps the Poor. Okay, so now the men and their wives raised a cry, raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continue. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the earlier governor, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of the reverence, out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work of this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, a hundred and fifty Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor 
because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O oh my God, for I for all I have done for these people. Thanks, Elijah. Uh, bow your heads quickly again with me. God, as we dive again back into the Old Testament, into the book of Nehemiah, uh, we pray that um, you would give us a particular kind of vision, that you would um, illuminate the things that have formerly been unseen for us, um, that you would bring to the forefront in our lives areas in which um, you are breaking through, where you are asking for us to give you permission um, to take hold of us, where we are accepting and, and, and living in faith that you will do good work in us, God. We pray that, uh, I pray today that you would be with me as I, I teach through this chapter. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, in the 1980s, uh, there was a farm, a massive collapse of small farms in America. Uh, the, the Soviet Union, the U.S. under Jimmy Carter just put an embargo on the Soviet Union thinking that it would, it would restrict their invasion of Afghanistan. It would send a strong message to them that, that we are not in support of this, that we are going to withhold imports and trade. We are going to begin to shut our walls to you. And what had happened is that during that time, inflation had skyrocketed uh, and land prices had gone way down. And so in the midst of all of these dynamics, sort of the Cold War, the heat of this time of, of economic um, suffering, these farmers in the Midwest of all these small farms creating the fabric of America suddenly fell into despair. And what we saw in those early period in the 1980s is that farmers went increasingly to find loans and to find ways to take care of uh, they had to mortgage their land. They had to um, make deals with banks they would never really normally, normally make, and the interest rates were just skyrocketing compared to anything we're used to now. And desperation rose and rose, even to the point of farmers looking and saying, I have literally nothing left. I've leveraged everything I have. I now have to sell the farm, so to speak. And farmers, dishonored, downtrodden, began to take their lives. And we had an epidemic across America of the, of the former bucolic fabric, the beautiful red farm of America farmers took their lives, even came to desperation to the point of this headline in 1983, where a failed farmer and his son lured a, pa a pair of bankers a few miles north of their land in Minnesota, pretending to be potential buyers that would work with the banker to buy land, and then the sun shot the banker dead. So much desperation out of economic hardship, so much desperation out of unexpected circumstances, out of not being able to pay our bills, right? These farmers were just looking around there saying, we are beside ourselves. Somebody, they're crying out for help in every way they know we can that they can. This is the situation that Nehemiah finds himself in. This is the modern parallel to this chapter in Nehemiah, where, the, where the, the brothers have come to him and said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during this famine, right? The famine, the, the, the proverbial famine of trade embargoes. Remember, North, East, and South had all locked up 
had all said, we don't believe in what you're doing. We don't want Jerusalem rebuilt. You do not rebuild this wall, Nehemiah. And they began to mock, remember? And then as they built, they, they, they essentially drafted farmers and workers from all across the country to build this wall. Nehemiah had said, we are essentially in a wartime situation. I'm going to pull a draft. I'm going to bring everyone, all hands on deck, which means you abandon your fields, right? You abandon your crops. You come and you build this wall. And now after a period of time of this happening, the farmers are coming to him and saying, Nehemiah, we believe in what you are doing. But look, because of what you asked, we are now basically in a famine. We have built the wall of Jerusalem for the city of God. We have come and we have rallied. But now you need to take care of us. You're our leader. What is your plan? And they said, we don't think you're doing your job. We don't see that you're supporting us. And in verse 4, they say, we had to borrow money to pay the king's tax. The word usury in Elijah's Bible is another word for for interest, right? We had to borrow money to pay the king of Persia's tax on us. So remember, Jerusalem and Israel is still part of the Persian Empire. Nehemiah is, a, is an appointed governor from the king of Persia. And so this, this is much more like a, um, a state than it is an independent sovereign nation, right? They're, they're under the boot of Persia. And so they have to pay a tax to the king. So here are these people that have not, that have given up their livelihood, who have given up their jobs. And they have, they have said, the king's still asking for a tax for us. And Nehemiah, we had faith and we did what you asked, but times weren't good before. And now they're, now we had to abandon everything we were working for. We can't even grow our own food to sustain ourselves. We've got everybody here in the city. Help us. And it says, when Nehemiah heard their outcry of these charges, right, of these charges against these people, against these people who had used them in this time, he was very angry. Who had used them? They said, our brothers, the people that were around in this time have, have, have taken advantage of us. They, they've actually said, sure, we'll help you, but we're going to charge our usual interest. Look, the law says that we can do all of these things, that we can charge you interest, that we can actually, as a payment, since you have nothing to pay, we can even take your family members as sort of a debt collection, right? It's a sort of debt slavery. It's not the kind of a racial slavery we're used to, right? It's not a, it's not a dehumanized slavery that treats them as property. It's, it's, a, it's a value. They're putting a dollar amount on a person. And they're saying, because you have nothing else to give, give me your sons and daughters to work my fields. And that's the way you pay your debt. And Nehemiah is looking at this and he goes, I can't believe what is happening. How is it that this began to happen before my eyes? Think of it this way. Think of it in our current time and place. We are in somewhat of a wartime situation, aren't we? Trump has been called right now having to be a wartime president, right? We've got these sort of measures going in and taking place that are familiar only in war times, right? These, super, these absolute nationwide global measures that are being taken. Imagine now if during coronavirus, um, imagine that there was a loss of job, but no unemployment, no, no cares act, you know, to throw money out to no stimulus checks, 
right? No deferment of mortgage payments for those who are out of work, for those, for those who have had deaths in the family, for those, for those who are in hardship, nothing to support them at all. It, it wouldn't be illegal, right? It's not illegal for these people to be doing what they're doing. There, there was a measure for debt slavery in those times, right? In the Mosaic law, in that, in that age, in that history, there was a certain measure for debt slavery outlined in Exodus that says, if this is the only way to repay, and you do do this. Here's the rules, and it lays out very specific rules. One of the rules was a rule of jubilee. This is a very specific rule um, to sort of Jewish Israelite culture. Uh, they had six years where they would put, they would be able to have and hold that person in what was basically indentured servitude. It's a better way to look at it than slavery. Slavery for us conjures up this idea of lifelong property. For them, it was indentured servitude. They said, I will give of myself or my family to repay a debt. But after six years, no matter how much is repaid, there's a year of jubilee. They go free, right? Uh, it's, it's moot. We've done our time. We've put in our effort. And commentaries write that probably the situation that was going on here is that people were, were saying, no, times are hard for me. The, the brothers that were taking advantage, the friends and family and the people around that were taking advantages of these poor people, they were saying, look, times are hard for me too. I can't do Jubilee this year. You, I, I've got to keep this person. They were starting to maybe break laws. Maybe the treatment of the servants was above and beyond the usual right? Something about, or maybe they were following everything, even obeying Jubilee. We don't know. But in this particular context, in this particular situation, the poor and the downtrodden were crying out. They were crying out. In Genesis 4, God says to Cain, after he murders his brother in injustice, he said, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I think when Nehemiah hears these impoverished, poor people coming to him and say, we have helped you, we have done the good thing, and look the injustices that are happening to us, he's recalling to his mind, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Something is unjust. Even if all of the legal rules are followed, there's an injustice right? Even if it were totally legal, we don't deserve a stimulus check. We don't deserve the CARES Act. There's a certain level of injustice because we're called to do something right now that we didn't plan or expect to do. We're called to stay home from jobs and workplaces and get cut paychecks in a way that we weren't expected to do. And so it's not the legality of it. It's the humanity of it. It's the love of it. And so Nehemiah these people that are crying out are not in so much of a different situation than we are in. Really, it's actually a surprisingly similar situation that we can relate to particularly right now. When I was planning this series, I would never one million years would have imagined that we could relate so deeply to this chapter, right, in this way. But this is the situation that these people find themselves in. The dedicated people who have been drafted to build their walls are coming to their leader and they are saying, please, you have to do something. Uh, and, it's, and it's right for them to, to be, have a keen sense of that injustice, right? To have this sense of injustice. It's, our society 
has just as keen of a sense of injustice. And oftentimes, it's been related to us as Christians, right? We have, as Christians, we have a, a as, as people in the society, we have a way that we view injustice that is so keen and so spot on. If you look at headlines, we are in a call-out culture more than we've ever been in before, right? Where we are so aware of every injustice, and we call it out. We call out that hypocrisy against people, right? And so our society has done this to us. We've been the person to receive the brunt of that, right? To call out Christians, to call out pastors, to call out churches. We, we have to realize that injustices are not just called out on somebody else by us, that we're not just in the hands of those who are calling out these injustices, but they're also called out against people like us. In fact, they're called out against us, right? Um, even, even if they're not true, we will be recipients of those kinds of injustice, right? Uh, in this time where there's so much injustice uh, that, that is perceived, we're actually, people are looking all over the place for it. Our biases are all activated, right? There was a headline, um, March 20, right when this started, that was accusing three senators who had pulled all of their money, right, right before the stock market started to tank, who had pulled all, and they were accusing them essentially of insider tra- trading, right? And the senators came back and they said it was public observation. We were looking at this and I, I haven't seen anything since then. Right. But it's, it's to say this, that there is a keen sense when the going gets tough for you to call out and cry out and say there's an injustice against me and to have a keen sense of the hypocrisy. So Nehemiah is in this really delicate situation as a leader. Is what they're saying true? Right. Are, are they calling out against like these senators and it's not, an, it's not an issue and I need to ignore it and I need just to keep a rule of law? Or is what these, these people are saying, is this verifiably true? Is there evidence for this? And is there a wrong that is happening? And so this chapter is really dealing with this sense of hypocrisy, right? Uh, it's dealing with a question of integrity. So here's the question we're going to talk about today. I know too often that I'm a hypocrite. How do I become a person of integrity? What's the key? How is it done? Too often I'm a hypocrite. How do I become a person of integrity? I think we need to first in this story put ourselves in the position of these families who are doing all right in this situation where other people's lives are falling apart, where these farmers and, and, and vintners and other people's lives have fallen apart, and they're saying, we have to put ourselves in their shoes and we have to say, what is it that I'm doing that does not suit the situation I'm in, that does not suit the title that I carry, that doesn't suit who I, who I say I am? My actions aren't lining up. And Nehemiah is is wrestling with this question. He's saying, he's essentially looking at this and he's saying, where are people's souls going to satisfy their longings? He's looking at these different parties and he's saying, where do their souls go to satisfy their longings? When the stock market is crashing, when tensions between nations are rising in the heat of tension and conflict, 
Where does our soul go to satisfy its longings? And if we then pay attention to that, can we truly say we are people of integrity? Or must we profess that we worship at the altar of something else? that we hold in the highest esteem, that when we are befallen with all of these troubles and all of these problems, that we fret at the altar of something else. And that is the thing that we worship. And Nehemiah jumps in after, after he gets this, this confession, this um, heartache from these parties that are saying and crying out, right? He says, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. So he takes, the ESV says he takes counsel with himself. I thought that was a great way to put it. I pondered them, I took counsel with myself. I sat and I weighed in the balance both sides of the story. I sat and sought to understand the injustice. And, and then he says, I told them you are charging your own people interest, right? He comes and he brings a charge against them. Uh, in, in one version, he says, he, he, he takes these charges against them. One commentary writes that it's, he's taking them to court, right? He's actually leveling a lawsuit against them. He's saying, I'm going to lay this down for you. And I'm going to bring, I'm going to threaten to bring in witnesses, right? I'm going to actually bring in people around who have been hurt, people who are in our area, people that can give an objective point of view. And we are going to weigh this as if we are in a court of law. So this chapter, think of it like a, like a court drama, like a wartime court drama. Like, I don't know if you guys ever watched this, probably too old for some people, that, that, that show Jag, right? It was all about like, you know, Air Force lawyers, right? And you're dealing with situations where you, you are in heightened situations. People are making quick decisions and you have a courtroom drama taking place. The law is coming up and it's coming up against the heart. And Nehemiah has to assess and say, what is the injustice? So the first point, the reason that Nehemiah is angry is he is listening for and listening to injustice. So if we're talking about integrity today, I just want to walk us through this. If we're thinking about what does it mean to have integrity? The first point we must look at is that we must be listening for and listening to injustice. Another way of thinking about this that Nehemiah just makes very clear. What does it say right there? It says, Nehemiah was angry. We must be angry at sin if we, have to, if we want to begin to have any sense of integrity. Sin must make us angry. When we see it, it must make us angry. When we experience it, and as we'll get to, when we find it in ourselves, it should make us just as angry. All right, so Nehemiah is angry at sin and he's, he's angry at people who have allowed sin into their lives, but he's also angry that he's allowed it to get this far, right? Nehemiah is in a situation where the people that are coming and crying out to him have been, have been working for him, right? It's like a manager whose employees come in and reveal to him something that he never that he didn't actually see and they say 
you realize, like, we, we believe in you, but this just can't keep going. This isn't going to work. And here's why. And so what Nehemiah has to, what, what he has to address is he has to understand and show how we are on the same team. How the church, how the nation of Israel, how the people he's with, the city of God, express to them how we are all on the same team. It's not about gaining advantages over somebody else. Particularly useful right now in our time, right? We can relate to this. If we're in a situation where anyone could die, we all have to be on the same team. Remember last uh, two weeks ago when Michael Miller was preaching, right? Uh, he was talking about carrying a sword in one hand and building with the other. You don't do that unless you're in a situation where any moment forces could invade and you could all die, right? And so what's, what's exposed to him in this moment is he says, wait a second, you're not on the same team here. I thought we were all on the same team. Man, was I wrong. We are not on the same team here. Can I please sit down? Not just sit down and reveal to you in a kind, nice way. Can I sue you? Can I sue you? That's what it's going to take to get you to realize that you're not on the same team with it. You need a slap in the face, those of you who are being unjust, those of you who are taking advantage of the poor, right? Those of you who are taking a situation and using it to profit for your own gain. He's saying, I'm going to level a lawsuit against you. And so Nehemiah is calling out those who are accused. And he's saying, I need to bring this in front of everybody and we need to make good for this. Right? So in doing that, he's saying the accused are called out by others and he's also calling himself out based on the others that are accused. He says, he says this, he says, we, he starts to search himself. If you go to verse eight, right? He says, he says, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So he's searching in his heart. He's saying, I'm pretty sure that I've been just in this as far as I can see it. Let me start to investigate myself. You're leveling a charge, not just uh, you, you who are impoverished and poor and are, are selling your sons and daughters into slavery. You're not just leveling a charge against those who have abused you in your eyes. You're actually leveling a charge against me as your governor. Let me investigate to myself what I've done. And now let me relate it to the people that are accused so that they can see, so that they can have a whole picture hopefully to bring them to a point of change, right? He says, we, we tried to reclaim the people that were sold. And I think what he means by that is both we have brought people out of exile of Persia. So we have brought people out of this place where they didn't have a home. We've brought them back into the family of Israel. We've tried to establish a city. But I also think he may be talking here about just people in the villages who have had to sell the, their, their brother, their daughters and sons into other nations. And he's actually gone on a mission in this time and he's gone to reclaim them and bring them back into the city. He said, we're, we're working against having people in slavery. We want freedom. We want the city to be whole and pure. And he says, 
And you seem to have no qualms. You've basically said, look, I'm not breaking the law. So what's your big, what's the big deal? He said, how calloused and hard you are. And he has to reveal to them their own injustice. He has to present it in a way that they will understand it. He said, the thing that you are doing is not good, right? Here's a lawsuit. This isn't legal. I'm going to tender a lawsuit against you. Not because the letter of the law isn't followed, because this won't hold up in court. Because your injustice is not going to be pleasing to the people around you. And I need you to see that in the only way that you can see it. And he says, ought you not walk in the fear of God to pretend to, to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? So, so now he goes from seeing and listening for injustice. He's discerned there is injustice. He's brought it to the table. So that's the first step. He's gotten angry. He's gotten angry because of his own failures and he's, of his management, of his people. And he's gotten angry at the people who, in which he was charged to manage who have not just failed, but have been hard and calloused and self-righteous in their failure. Okay, so then where does he go? This brings us to our second point. He says, I've got to root this out. So after seeing, we must not be content until we root sin out and let it be rooted out of us. So first, let's talk about rooting sin out, okay? Uh, first of all, we fail at this all of the time. We are terrible at rooting out sin. We're really good at seeing injustice. Those kind of headlines, these kind of call-outs, right? We're really good at doing that, especially to other people, not so good at ourselves. Really good at other people, right? Calling out injustices. But we are terrible at rooting it out. Because to root it out requires, first of all, conflict. To root it out requires that you be sure and not just sort of biased or hypothesizing, right? And he says... I am going to root this out. I'm going to put a lawsuit. I'm going to put myself on the line and I'm going to call this out and then I'm going to chase it down and I'm going to convict you. He says, ought you not walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of our nations and our enemies? Ought you not walk in the fear of God? So he's saying it's not... It's not about legal and not legal. He's saying you're not walking in the fear of God. First of all, he says this, to prevent the taunts of our nation's enemies. First of all, do you realize that even if you found some way to justify this in your own mind to make this work out, do you realize what this looks like? This looks awful, right? Whether or not that politician did drop all of his stocks out of the market because he had insider trading or not, you have to admit this, it looked pretty bad for him to do that, right? And, and probably he should have, should have thought through how bad it looks for a civil servant, a servant of the people, to be bailing out on the economy and the market. And in a time where he probably should have been caring about what? Getting PPE to people and taking care of all this stuff. He is thinking about his own money, right? That ought to convict someone to be shown that and to say, got to convict us. When we're shown, look, something doesn't feel right here. 
you might have justified this in, in your heart. You might have said that you deserve this because, look, times are tough. i got to watch out for me. I worked hard to have that savings. I worked hard to get that investment portfolio. I worked hard to have my family or my house. I worked hard to have my job. So, no, I can't help you right now. Right? you got to look hard at your heart and you got to say, what does this look like to non-Christians? What does this look like to the nations? You're no different than them if you act this way. And so there's, there's different ways in which we are like these, these folks who have extracted and charged interest even in war times. There's ways that we're like them. There's ways that we get there. We don't just magically pop into this place of calloused self-piety and self-righteousness. No, we, we go through steps, right? Here's how it starts. Oftentimes we get discouraged. Maybe we get bored or distracted. We're impatient. And then that leads to growing, growing bitter. Actually, that's where the self-righteousness comes out, right? I, I've done the right things. I'm following the law. I've, I've accumulated my wealth is probably what these people said. They're discouraged because the city isn't doing great. They're discouraged because in obeying the law, they're not able to do all the trading that they want to do. They're not able to take the most opportunities to advance their portfolios, to get more money to do whatever they're doing. They're getting bored and they start to get distracted. This happens to Israel over and over again, that they start to get distracted right? They get impatient. And then they start to get bitter. Bitter, or they start to get scared. And I think we can relate to that. When we start to hold on to what's mine, it's because we've grown either bitter at the ways that when we give it away, it never helps us out. This Jesus thing of loving other people and taking care of other people never really, never really comes back to help me, right? These people would be better off with some other system. I shouldn't be helping them, right? Or uh, they never seem to get better, so why am I doing this? Or uh, that's their own problem. They've dug their, 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 they've made their bed, they should lie in it, right? Or we're totally unaware of anybody else. We have no bias and we're just freaked out. We're not giving any time to thinking about anybody else because we're scared. And he's saying there's, there's a beginning to this that leads to this kind of gross negligence. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in the screw tape letters. The screw tape letters are, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's a, it's a fictional account about um, basically the devil writing to one of his understudies, to one of his apprentices named Wormwood, right? And he's, he's writing to them how to tempt his subjects, his patients, um, his clients, the, the, the Christians, right? How do you tempt a Christian? And so he's talking about how usually we are the most blind to our sinful desires. And he says these desires have become the most sinful because they have been excused, left untended, or hidden either consciously but most often subconsciously, justified as a necessary right or concern in light of our particular context. So I want us to ask ourselves today, how much, how, much are we, how much are we justifying calloused, hard attitudes right now towards a person, towards a group of people, towards a political stance, towards, towards, um, towards our city, towards people with certain agendas? 
right? Towards people that have hurt us. How much are we hardening in our callousing ourselves in a way to say, no, no, God, you just don't understand my particular context. This is a necessary right, as Lewis would put. It's a necessary concern. I ought to be doing this to take care of my situation. Because that's what these, these men who are extracting who are taking people into debt slavery, their own brothers, that's what they're doing. They've justified it. They're not, they're not thinking that hard about it. And it's only when Nehemiah comes to them and he says, first of all, I need you to be alone with your own thoughts for a second. I need to play this out, what's actually happening, what you're actually doing here. Sit and be alone for this for a second. And then he says, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? He starts to rip it out by the root, right? He wants to, his people to have integrity, so he rips it out. He takes the nominal and the lukewarm, as it's called in Revelation, and he says, look, there's no such thing as a nominal Christian, right? You either are or you aren't. I think far too often we get in a place where we are resting on our laurels. Have you heard that term, resting on our laurels? The idea that we've done some good things and that was enough and now we're just kind of ride that wave for a while, right? But we all know, we all know somebody who's rested on their laurels for too long, right? We have a word for that. It's called a has-been, right? Somebody who, who everyone else knows except them. They've still deluded themselves that what they did was who they are now. And so that's that, uh, this term resting on your laurels. Are you resting on your laurels as a Christian? And I'll put it another way. I'll just put it in a more harsh way. Are you nominal? Have you said, no, I'm a Christian because I got baptized and uh, I profess Jesus and I go to church, but actually I haven't, I haven't looked into it much in the last few years. I haven't thought about it that much. If you asked me who I was, I would say a Christian, but would I actually look like a Christian? Am I carrying my cross? Am I counting counting the cost? Am I sacrificing for others in love? Are these fruits showing up for me? Or if somebody were to bring a lawsuit to me and the public were to gather around and my brothers and sisters and Christians who carry the same name with me, who are passionate and who are doing it, would they look at me and say, I'm sorry, but I've got to call you out on this. Ought you not walk in the fear of God? So that's what Nehemiah is talking about here. Look at it another way. Uh, If you had an MD, like a doctor, right? And they were accused of malpractice and they said, look, I don't even want to hear it. Just look at the sign above my door. I'm a doctor, right? Sometimes I think that's what we do. We we say in our heart, we say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, I I love Jesus. And Jesus would want this for me, right? Or Jesus would understand. But in our heart, we're calloused and we're hard. And that doctor, if they are accused of malpractice, the thing that they must do is they must defend themselves, They must stand before and defend themselves. And that's the situation Nehemiah is calling these Old Testament people to. He's saying, ought you not walk in the fear of God? Are you actually imposters? And so um, he's, he's, he's getting them to admit their fragility 
apart from God. That's what he's getting them to do. He's saying, can you admit that apart from God, you are fragile? He says, let's change all of this. Here's what, here's what it's like he's calling them out as. Um, Israel in this time is like a recovering alcoholic at the 90-day mark of AA, right? Israel is in a situation, think about it. Imagine for a second, visualize their setting. They are in a place right now where the city is in ruin. Why is it in ruin? Because the nation, the kings have fallen out of step with God. They have, they have begun to turn away from him to the point where finally the Babylonians took them into exile and now they're in exile in Persia and they're finally back, right? They're finally back in their sovereign nation. They're at this 90 day mark. They have this fragile life, right? Uh, I was talking with Michael Miller because we're planning a series together and he says, it's like they're at this point where they've just gotten their kids back, right? And they're just starting to get their life back together. And they have a conscious sense as a nation that they don't deserve it, that this is a second chance. And so what Nehemiah is saying is he's going, somehow some of you got a taste of a good thing and you got cut a good break and you have totally forgotten that we all just got our kids back here. We're all recovering alcoholics, right? That we are all this close to falling back in sin, into, in, into, into a place where we have no nation, no wall, no governorship, no, no God to worship, no temple. It could all be destroyed. Don't you get that? He says, walk in the fear of God. So it's important for us as we're, and, and I'm going to evolve this. It applies to us differently in the New Testament. But it, to put ourselves in Nehemiah's shoe, shoes here, there is, there is some way that we need to say, look, I have so many past failures. And I have a grace of a second chance. Right? Because then we can live in gratitude. We can have a kind of holy vision. Nehemiah constantly keeps God in his field of vision. In the fear of God is Nehemiah's way of saying, expand your vision. Have a holy vision. When you live your day, realize, and I've talked about this over and over, and I'm going to keep hitting on, you are in the presence of God right at this very moment. He's with you always. So know and keep God in your field of vision. And then Nehemiah goes there. He makes it real. He makes, it, he makes them accountable. He, he says, I'm going. He, said, he invokes a, basically a curse on them. I mean, we, this actually makes a lot of sense for us these days. There's not a lot of explaining I have to do here. If you go to verse 13, he says, And I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and possessions. Right? We still talk about a shakedown, right? There's, we still have this idea that he's saying, look, I like, like my, my pocket where I hold my money and all of the, my wealth and my garment, I'm going to shake it out and I'm going to shake you out in the same way so you better behave. So Nehemiah has the authority, and I think it's a good authority. It's a fatherly authority where he's saying, I need to root this out of you. And what do the people do? The assembly says, amen, let it be so. And praised God, and the people did as they had promised. So Nehemiah roots it out, but he doesn't 
stop there. And this is so crucial when we think about injustice and rooting out, right? It is so easy for us. You could walk away from the sermon and you go, great, John just told me I have license to the thing I've been wanting to do for a long time for my friends. I've been wanting to go up to this friend. I've just been wanting to chew them out and talk about how all the things they're doing to me are wrong. And, I, and, and, and John just told me I can do it. In fact, I can even invoke a curse on them. And I can tell them that they're going to get shaken out by God. And they better have the fear of God, right? That's like we could take this message away and we could think that we're, be, we're being given that kind of just carte blanche license. But no, Nehemiah immediately says, no, I got to check myself. I just told a bunch of people that they ought to be, have a fear of God. Do I have a fear of God? And he goes and he cleans his own house with the same measure of his accusation. In his accusation, he has said, you ought to do this. And then no sooner has he done it, than he goes back and he says, I have to stand, but I have to practice what I just preached. And uncompromisingly, at huge cost to himself, he begins to root evil. In fact, Nehemiah does something that is unprecedented. Commentaries write that Nehemiah set an example as a Persian official that had literally no precedence in the Persian Empire, as far as we know. He wanted to stress the fact that contrary to what Jewish leaders did, he himself endeavored to promote the welfare of his people. See, previous governors had said, well, uh, it's in my contract that I can take this tax. I need to hold people in my court. And so in this next section, he says, I am not going to do the thing that other governors have done. the, The wine and the food and the meat that I feed people that are coming to visit, these are not... These are are things he has to do for his job, his governorship. He's saying, I'm not going to tax my own people for that. Not in this time, not in this situation. I'm going to relieve them of that. I'm actually going to pay that cost out of my own purse. He's saying, I'm going to accuse these men who are living out this injustice, who are taking and extracting interest, and I'm going to look at my own situation. I'm going to say, in my own contract, what does it say? Oh, I've been charging interest too. Oh, my royal court has been taking things from the land too. Wow, I'm convicted. I am utterly convicted. Just as soon as I have leveled an accusation, a true accusation of injustice, I have gone and I have cleaned my own house and I have come up seeing all the ways in which I don't measure up and I'm going to do my absolute best, even at horrendous cost to myself. He says, In verse 18, now what was prepared at my expense, yet for all of this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on his people. So he he does all of this, and then he says, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for his people. Kind of sounds like fearing the Lord right there, right? He He has feared the Lord, and he has done his utmost to make his life right. Jesus talks about this. Jesus has a very famous passage about this in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. He says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used to measure you. He says, What do you look? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? 
You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, one, one author writes this, he says, in this verse, Jesus argues that one must first remove the plank before going on to remove the speck. This verse makes it clear that it is the height of hypocrisy to point out a minor flaw or sin in another when your sins are much worse. Jesus always made clear that judging was to be done by the Father, and humans should concern themselves with making their own soul ready for acceptance into the kingdom of God. The focus should always be in one's own faults, not their neighbor's. Such aid should only be given, however, once one's own much larger problems are dealt with. Your own salvation and righteousness should be your focus, not finding faults in others. See, a lot of us live a huge portion of our, of our lives. We spend a huge portion of our emotional energy fighting fights because those causes give us identities. And they distract us from the actual issues that if we sit in silence in our own, alone with our own thoughts, we will be forced to face. That if we are in community in accountability with other people, we will give license and confession in brother and sisterhood for others to come in and call us to task. That is terrifying. Ruth Haley Barton has this analogy. She calls, she calls this calloused hardness, this judgment of others first before your own. She talks about this as losing your soul. She said, losing your soul is sort of like losing a credit card. You think it's in your wallet, so you don't give it much thought until one day you reach for it and can't find it. The minute you realize it's gone, you start scrambling to find it, trying to remember when you last used it or last had it in your possession. No matter what is going on in your life, you stop and look for it because major damage could be done. Oh, that we would have the same sense of urgency when we find that we have lost our souls. So Nehemiah, in this anger, he's, he, first, he first tackles the, the outward injustice, but in doing so, he constantly is bouncing it off of his own personal soul. And he's saying, am I a man of, I'm, call, I'm, I'm, a, I'm leveling a lawsuit. That's about as far as you can go to accuse, right? In our current culture, leveling a lawsuit is putting it all out there. It can't be undone right? I'm leveling a lawsuit. Do I have the right to do that? Can, can I go there? Or do I have a plank in my own eye? And he's taking stock consistently through this. He's saying, no, we've brought, brought the brother, brothers back in verse 8. He's saying, okay, no, they're, they're, I, I'm feeling pretty sure about this. I'm feeling pretty good about this. And then he goes and reviews his own contract. And he sees that he's got, he's got to do some costly things to get right. Okay, so if, if I stopped here, if I stopped here, it's a little better, but here's what you would take away from me. Well, John told me today that I should really look inward, and man, I just see this pus and rot inside of myself. I'm so, yeah, I have lost my soul. Man, I'm just junk. God would never want me. Man, I got to work so hard. I am so ashamed. Man, the next time I got to talk about everything I've done when I meet with people and how good I've been. Right? It would be all a works-based salvation. You would be trying to seek integrity by doing better, by being better. And that is, that is like the insidious, that is the devil's insidious half-gospel. 
that so many of us live so much of the time when we don't we, when we when we're not living out of love but when we're living out of ambition when when we have sort of a, a holy vision but it's not actually a holy vision it, it's it's a self-righteous vision it's a vision it's it's so in line with the American dream right it's a pick yourself up by the bootstraps vision it's the Christian version of that and he says no there, there's a key to restoring integrity within tackle and handle and deal with this holy vision right the fear of God gets you there it's the Old Testament version but what is he really talking about what is this holy vision what is keeping God always in our in our field of vision mean well, well we all know that in order to root out sin all over the New Testament we hear about gratitude we hear about thankfulness right in order to root out sin first we must be thankful thankful for what Now, uh, Jesus puts it this way. He says, he tells the story of the debtors in Matthew 18, right? He's talking about the same kind of injustice. Oh, there are so many parallels here, right? He's saying there, there, there once was a man who owed, who had borrowed millions, right? I loved how Michael Smith put this when he preached on this passage. He said, it's like a Silicon Valley uh, startup uh, entrepreneur, who, who gets just tons of capital, startup capital, millions and millions of dollars, and then just blows it, screws it all up, loses it all, all of this borrowed money, right? And then he comes back and he's forgiven. He's totally forgiven. And so he drives out in his Tesla, I think Michael said I love this, drives out in his Tesla and gets rear-ended, right? And then gets out and just rips into the guy who rear-ended him. In here, Jesus said, he, he, the guy who, who only owed him a few thousand dollars after he had been forgiven, he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. And his fellow servant fell before him and begged him for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Well, if, if, if we just go by the law, if we just go legally and we just take verses 28 through 30 there, if only the only thing we had in this story is there once was a man who was owed money by a fellow by, by a fellow servant. And so we put him in debtor's prison so that it could be paid off. Right? In a time and place in history, that would have been totally legal. Nothing wrong with that. That's just that's just abiding by the law. To live a true gospel, to have a certain kind of holy vision. Jesus tells the whole story, and he reminds us that so often we live our life when an injustice is done. We go and exact vengeance. We go and exact payment with no consciousness of what we are thankful for, of the level, the perspective, the vision. This is what the fear of God that Nehemiah is calling for. This is the spirit of it. But Nehemiah doesn't have all the pieces yet. Nehemiah is missing Jesus. Fortunately, we're on the other end of that, right? Jesus died for our sins so that we don't have to. Because of Jesus, he took the wrath for us that we deserve. He died the death so that we don't have to die it. Nehemiah literally did fear God's wrath. That is a real statement. In the Old Testament, there was a real fear of God's wrath. But we can't apply that today in the same way. We can't apply that. I, I'm not driving you here to say, I'm not driving you to convict you 
and to say, if you don't do right, God's wrath is utterly upon you. Instead, like Paul, I'm saying, look, Jesus paid it all, right? Jesus took the wrath so that you don't have to take it. And the, the only way to live out of that in true gratitude, recognizing that, professing faith in that, is to say that I'm going to live out of that love, that I'm going to accept it and live in perspective of it with a kind of holy vision, a field of vision of it. Uh, John writes this in First John, he says, chapter 4, verse 17, This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love, but we love because he first loved us. Now that might... That might not seem very tangible to you. Sometimes I read that and I feel like, yeah, but that doesn't really take care of the, of the fear part. That doesn't take care of the punishment. I'm still afraid of going to hell. I'm still afraid of God's wrath. And, and there's, there's a really important joining phrase in there. He says, in this world, we are like Jesus. We are. The Holy Spirit is in us because we profess faith in Jesus, and he's working out in us. Do not fear. You have assurance. Nehemiah had a real fear of God, a true and rattling fear, an image to conjure up fear. He had, he, but he, he also had the presence in his life at the moment of Jesus' forgiving and gracious hand in a certain way, right? They had been spared. He, he, he grabbed onto that grace and he says, we're like recovering alcoholics and in the same way we can do the same thing. We can say, the only reason that we're recovering is because of the cross. The only reason that we can live out of love and not fear is because we have Jesus. So we don't need to do good works to manipulate God into saving us. Tim Keller puts it this way, he says, to put God in our debt. He simply had mercy. He saw it was too big. He looked at it and he saw there's absolutely no way that Donna or Noah or Sarah or Megan or Alex can repay that debt. It's too big. I, I love my children and I look and I say, there's literally no way. That's what God's saying. There's literally no way they will ever do this. There's another solution. And he sends Jesus. And I'll, I'll close with this. Um, a disciple once said to their master, when they were working out their spiritual discipline, right? When they were working out all of this hard stuff and they were grappling with, well, John, what do I do, right? What should I do? How do I get better? How do I, how do I kick this? How do I not have this problem? When they're working out their spiritual discipline, which they do, the disciples doing over their whole life, over and over again, failing, recovering, getting somewhere, growing, seeking transformation. And the disciple says, is there anything I can do? And the master replies, as soon, as little as you can do to make the sun rise in the morning. What kind of a response is that? As little as you can do to make the sun rise. Well, I'm out. That's, that's not cool. I thought we were going to get somewhere in this lifetime. As little as you can do to make the sun rise in the morning. 
disconcerted, the disciple asked, what then was the use of the spiritual exercises the master had taught him? What's the use of prayer? What's the use of confession? What's the use of reading my Bible? What's the use of any of it if I'm not, not going to transform into the Holy One, right? If I'm not going to earn it, if I'm not going to have a pass to heaven once I get far enough. And the master replied, to make sure you are not asleep when the sun begins to rise. So it's a, it's a different paradigm. The paradigm is be a sharp tool ready at all times to be used by the hands of God. That's the ask. That's the, the be a sharp tool is to be loving, is to walk like Jesus. Nehemiah was just using the closest thing he had. He, he sensed that truth and he just, he used the fear of God, right? But we don't have to be afraid, but we are asked to be sharp. We are asked to be awake because then we can say like Nehemiah in confidence, we can say, remember we, me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Just remember me in favor, God. I saw my house. I'm cleaning it up. Remember me. Don't forget me. Paul writes this in Philippians 2. And I'll close this in prayer. He talks about this, this dichotomy, this challenge, right? Of both being utterly saved and utter, utterly called to readiness, to awakeness, to vigilance. He says, therefore, this is Philippians 2. 2 through 12, if you want to follow along. Philippians 2, 2 through 12. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death at a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I'm just going to read that last part again. The emphasis is not on fear. Continue. To work out, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Let's pray. God, we need so much encouragement. Uh, God, it is so easy to be in despair, especially now, to wake up in sort of a listless angst, to become bored and distracted, to become impatient, to ask, ask you, God, why? Why have you brought this? Why is there so much injustice? 
and not necessarily, God, to get an answer from you, a reason so that then we can conquer it and move on in righteousness and all-knowingness and superiority and shove that down other people's throats. No, God, you, you have brought this time to us right now as a mystery, God, and you have asked us to be awake when the sun rises. You've given us everything we already need to do, God. There's not some special secret mystery. There's not some secret ingredient that we don't have. There's not some recipe that we've got to do to unlock why this makes sense, God. It makes sense because of Jesus. And God, I pray that we could live and love and count the cost and sacrifice like him. That as we see our neighbors, we could think not at all about ourselves, but simply about their needs. And to love them is to satisfy their needs, God, to care for them. I pray that you would give us that heart today. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.